Welcome to New England Lacrosse Journal's Chasing the Goal podcast, your destination for all things lacrosse. I'm your host, Kyle Devitt. Not alongside me, but in studio is Jack Piatelli. Jack, how we doing? Doing really well. We're only a month away from college lacrosse, men's and women's, to start up, believe it or not. We do start playing in February, which is crazy in the Northeast, but it is what it is. We'll get a chance to start watching college lacrosse, which we're very excited about. And talking about college lacrosse, we have a great guest, Dave Evans who played at Brown and for the Boston Cannons and one of the directors for Laxachusetts and Tracy Sullivan, who is uh, the director of the women's program. Welcome to the, the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. We're excited to be here. Uh, thanks for having us, Jack. Yeah, I think one of the, one of the things I want to start with is I am not super knowledgeable about women's lacrosse at all, but I will say one thing. I think it is way harder to play than men's lacrosse. Do you think that's fair or and do you agree with it or you disagree with it? I totally think that's fair. I mean, the pocket alone in the girl sticks makes it extremely difficult to catch and throw, which is why the focus on stick skills, just like in the guys game, is is even more important. What are some of the things that you some of the tools you use to teach younger players to be able to deal with that, to catch and throw the ball, carry and, and get it off the ground? Yeah, so I think the first thing we do is we look at their sticks. So there's a lot of different types of sticks out there. And those younger girls that come in, sometimes they have tennis rackets because those beginner sticks have zero pocket whatsoever. So we check out their sticks, make sure they have a good pocket in there. And then we begin, just like the guys, we teach those soft hands, making sure they're catching in the middle of the pocket up by their ear. A lot of the times we're doing a lot of running races, chasing the girls, being able to keep that ball in their stick under pressure. Just be confident with the ball. I think that's huge for the girls because a lot of the times, the first time they have that stick in their hand, we want to get them excited about the sport. And just being able to have that confidence will help them be able to catch and throw a lot of the times. I got a question on the stick. I know over the years, the stick length has changed with the girls what do you recommend for the younger girls and as you move up the ladder in grades what, what does it tend to be lengthwise totally a lot of the times they say to put it to your armpit and then all the way out and that's kind of an outdated thing the girls it's really important to have that stick length we teach them to slide their top hand all the way up to the top of the stick and the bottom hand can also slide up so for the girls we just when they're when they're little first second third grade even we'll let them cut we'll cut like an inch or two off and then we want them to get used to playing with that full length of a stick. I, th I think it's, Tracy talked about the top hand, moving their top hand. And you see like a lot of beginners, they lock their hands on the, on the white knuckle. It. Yes. And you're, you're, that's one of the big things. Like when I get, get out there with them, I'm like, hey, you can soft hands and let it just sit in your palms and then you can move it. Because inevitably not every pass is right on the stick. Right, right. And having that top hand by the, the throat of the mm -hmm. stick gives you a feel for the ball. Exactly. Right? Get a, exactly. Give you a re really good feel for the ball. Yep. And we do a lot of one-handed stuff in the girl's side, so they get, get used to that soft to top hand. A lot of, we call them finger twirls, so they're not holding onto that stick. And it's obviously nothing that they use in a game, something they can practice at home, and then it helps with that loose grip, which I think is really important. I think one of the developmental questions I want to ask you is, when you play men's, boys lacrosse, when you first start, when you're really young, everyone's a midi, right? Like everyone learns how to play midfield. Is that the same in women's lacrosse? And how and when do you start differentiating who's a defender and who's an attacker and who's a goalie? So I think it starts off for everybody being a midi. And then when they go to the full field, you see a lot of kids drop off to I'm either attack or defense. <laughs> and nobody checks the middle box. They don't want to be a midi because they don't want to run. In girls lacrosse, I mean, they are running 
just like in boys across all the time, but we, we, for whatever reason, we tend to sub the middies a little bit less on the girls' side. We don't run as fluid of lines as we definitely should be, at least at the youth level. In the high school level, we definitely do. But a lot of the times, the girls, they'll come in, they'll say, well, I'm attack or defense. And I'm like, okay, so you don't want to run. So that's a problem. So we try to change that mentality that attackers have to run just as much as midfielders and same with the defenders. But, you know, as they get older, we say sixth, seventh grade, they start to specialize in a position. But like in all of our skill sessions, we want our defenders to be able to learn how to shoot. And we want our attackers to learn to be the best defenders so they can rock it on the ride. So I think that's really important. There's been a ton of changes in the women's game, just like there has been less so in the men's game, but a lot more in the women's game, like the no out of bounds Constant, to the shot yeah. clock to the, the rise of zones and traps and things like that. What has been the most influential in how you coach youth in the rule changes at the higher levels? I think what's hard is that the rules aren't consistent. So in third and fourth grade, the rules are different from fifth to eighth. And then there's a difference from the high school level. And then the high school level, it's different from the college level. So, you know, in it, it, we're hoping that eventually it will be a little bit more consistent across the board. Why is that? I don't know. Like that's, in high school, we crazy. can't run through the crease, but in college you can. It's, it's crazy. I, I mean, they will eventually taper down. It takes like two to three years. I mean, when I played lacrosse, we didn't have out of bounds in the right, women's game, right. which is insane. So we've come a long way, I guess. So we're, I guess we're grateful for whatever we can get. But I think what we're trying to do in the club side is be able to show the college coaches that our kids can perform at that next level. They can use the shot clock. The defenders can run through the crease, can shoot from outside of the eight meter. We're trying to kind of teach or show the college kids that they can do it, even though those aren't things that they're going to do at the high school level, which is a little bit tricky. It's very tricky. Like the, the, the ref interpretation of the checking and your tournament roles versus totally. each, each week, it's really tough. So you talk about third through fifth and sixth through eighth. So when you go to tournaments, the rules are all different for those age groups. So that's going to be very difficult to sort of manage. And now now you are you go from fifth grade to sixth grade and the totally. rules are different. So like in fifth and sixth grade, it's modified checking. So you can only check below the shoulder. But then there are teams down south that play with full check. And then you have to adapt to that and teach your kids to be ready for anything. And the town lacrosse is refed very differently because of the different abilities, which I totally get. You're not playing full check. You're playing modified check. And the club players obviously have a big advantage over the players that are brand new to the sport. And then same goes for high school. There's a very different level between those top high school teams versus the teams that are a little bit newer startup programs for sure. I think, again, my relationship is, is limited with women's lacrosse. I did cover one, I think I said this on the Acacia Walker podcast as well. I covered a, a women's semifinal, like I would cover a men's semifinal when I worked for Inside the Cross, and it was the D1 semifinal. It was Northwestern and Maryland, I think in like 2016. And the next day, the women's editor was like, you're not doing women's lacrosse anymore. And I was like, <laughs> oh, what do I do? And she's like, I can't, I can't, I can't even tell you how different it is. And she's like, just people don't talk the way that you talk about analysis and, and that in the women's game. And I found that very interesting because not because I was negative, just because I, and or I was using the terms, but they weren't translating. Do you find that there's like a language barrier between the two sports? Because I feel like the, that's one of the things that not holds it back, but the thing that delineates it from, from men lacrosse. Definitely. But I think it's definitely changing, right? So my son actually just started playing Lax Chusets. He's in second grade, which is awesome. So I get to go watch the boys coach, which I haven't been able to do before because usually I'm always with just the girls. And a lot of their terminology is stuff that we have started to use. And I don't know if that's because there's a little bit more of a men's influence in the game 
or just another way to say something that might click with the kids. But I think it's been very helpful going from men's to women's. And Dave's awesome and comes to lots of our practices and skill sessions and some stuff he says to the girls really clicks and really it, the, the girls understand a little bit better. And that's something that we're using. And then Dave comes up with some terms that we've started using. So, I mean, I think there's becoming a lot more of a crossover, especially as the women's games, the rules are changing. For the women, I think we'll see more of it, but I think it's it's really cool. I do think too, like to your point, there's been some significant changes that have pushed the tempo. Mm-hmm. And and now you guys have utilized subbing on the fly significantly more, and that's pretty new. The restraining line. I actually love the idea that this restraining line is three quarters of the field. Imagine if you could ride three quarters of the field instead of half. Yeah. Right. How many guys you'd catch right at that right. midline and, and you'd yeah. no longer be all sides. But the that the the ball and and I always bring it back to the ball moves significantly quicker in the women's game because the sticks are made. They're like I put my daughter's stick up next to my old Excalibur, and the ball is lower in her stick than it was in the Excalibur wow. with a big pocket. Wow! And wow! So you, I just put him right on the counter, and I took a picture of it, and I was like, "Huh, look at that!" So I thought that was pretty unique, but. Yeah, that, you know, that tells you something how the sticks have changed oh, so much in the pockets. Right, right. But but you also, you watch like 80, 89 Hopkins, Syracuse, the ball never hits the ground. Yeah, it's, it's in the air the whole time. And you're like, what just happened? Yeah, bodies so, flying around. Right. And you watch our, the women's national championship game. And I, I actually went to the UNC BC game live last year. And I was on the edge of my seat. I was totally... Like, wow, this thing is incredible and it's physical and it's fast, but it is interesting how we get caught with the like terminology. Cause I'll listen to the, the play by play and I hear Stanwick talk about a spin move and I'm like, it's a roll dodge. Right. Yeah. (laughs) All right. You're like, I'm like, okay. But then I got to step back and I realize, okay. But it is pretty funny. It's the same thing. Just, just, uh, different terms, different different terms, different wording. Yeah. Yeah. You know how I know that? I actually was put into, was in a bad situation when I coached Daniel Webster, the, the women's coach left very abruptly right before the season started. And I was the women's coach for a month and, and the men's coach. So I was trying to teach a roll dodge and they're like, that's not what it's called. And I'm like, but it's the same movement, right? And also you can add this little, little turn fake. And they're like, that's not what that's called. And I'm like, okay, can we just, can you just please? Just try to like, they didn't want to accept me as it. And I think one of the things too is, is that language barrier. I don't think it, it hurts the relation between the sports. I think actually, and I will tell this, this story as well. When I was in the booth for the NCAA championships, I was covering it for, for New England Cross Journal in 2021 when Syracuse was playing BC and it's in between the end of that game was in between the semis. So I looked out and on press row and 80% of the computers were tuned into ESPNU and they were watching that and they were like, this is crazy. Have you seen this? This is insane. This, this, look how fast it is. And it's the, it's actually the first, I watched people in real time realize that it's so much closer to like in terms of speed and, and athleticism and especially like the ball moving to men's lacrosse than anyone, than any of them had ever even realized. Some of them have never seen women's lacrosse before. And they're like, oh yeah, everyone's talking about this. Let's put this on. And they're like, because I mean, p- part of that is like Charlotte Norris playing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like it's, it's the incredible. most amazing player 
I've ever seen, maybe in both sports and very great as well. I've, I've interviewed her. She's an amazing person. That kind of crossover, I think, is only going to increase. How do you, in your role, how do you do that? How do, what do you think your role is in, in, in changing that narrative? Like, do you, do you think that's part of your job really is to like, be like, oh, hey, do you like, do you show them men's film and be like, hey, look at this? Or do you just so I, don't, I wouldn't say we necessarily show the men's film. I'd say like at the high school level, we're really just trying to promote what it takes to play at the college level. Because a right. lot of these kids see the everyday of their high school teams, and it is just so much more than that. I mean, I work very closely with Acacia at BC, and, you know, that it is the absolute next level. It is so much more than they think that they need to give. Yeah. And the speed, the physicality, the skill level, the commitment, the dedication. I mean, those, it is a 24 hour, I mean, 20, sorry, seven days a week type job. And, and the kids don't really understand that. You know, they get a day off here at the high school level. They sometimes get two. And the girls are going in for film. They're going in for the training room. They're, they're doing these things that our high school kids don't even know exist yet. And it's a big jump. And so I think that's really what my job is, is getting them to understand what it takes to play at that next level. What's, what's one thing? that you want all parents of prospective female college athletes to know that maybe they don't know? I think that it's worth it. That time and commitment that you put into it is worth it in the end. Because I think seeing my kids from you know, over the past couple of years, given COVID, given what they went through in their high school season, they had to give up a lot. And I think playing at that next level and it was a big jump for a lot of the kids, especially our freshmen and our sophomores. And I think right now it's, it's been really hard. It's a big jump. And the kids are putting in a lot. And I think the light at the end of the tunnel is there. And that hard work will absolutely be worth it. And they'll be able to give. They'll be able to receive what they have put into it. Put it that way. It will be worth it once you give it the time and really put in that dedication. Tracy, talk about your women's program. Goes third through 11th grade, correct? Yep. So third through high school seniors. And where do you travel? Where do you play? How many teams do you have and where are the markets you like to play and, and compete at, at a higher level? Yeah, so we are very similar to the boys program. We're out of a lot of different locations, primarily Union Point. Down in Weymouth, Mass., we're out of Bedford, Massachusetts as well, out of the edge. We use Marlboro Fort Kicks. We use Sudbury Fieldhouse. We use the New England Sportsplex in Danvers. And we're, we're really all over, but primarily out of Union Point and Bedford. We have kids from the Cape all the way to Exeter, New Hampshire. And then come, they come as far as Longmeadow. We have a great group of Longmeadow girls that have dedicated themselves to make the drive to Marlboro every single week, sometimes two times a week, just really to get better with their skills. So we start at third grade. We have an awesome futures program that kind of feeds our, our Laxachusetts club that starts K1 and 2, which is a lot of fun. That has grown to be over 100 kids, which is incredible out of the girl side to see them starting that young. Again, that's where we really check their sticks because we want to make sure they have yeah. those big pockets. Sure. And then besides that, they, they really come from all over. We have a good mix of kids. We have a great group of South Shore kids, good group from the Metro West. Um, but again, most of our kids start with us in third grade and then they stick on through all the way out. So it's it's special. It's really cool to watch the kids grow with us and then see them out there in college. We just had our first graduating class, the class of 2017. And that was awesome to see. And then our class of 2022 was our class that started with us at Laxachusetts when they were in third grade. So it's been really cool to see them develop. Again, what tournaments do you, you run a women's tournament? tournament? Yep, we like, do. Like um, a legacy? Yep, we run. We actually, this past year, we, we called it Love to Lax. So it was with the One Love Foundation. This fall out at 
Citizens Park Field, Progan Park in Lancaster. And it was awesome. We had over 120 teams. We donated over, I think it was $18,000 to the One Love Foundation. They came and did the achievable talks with all of the players. It was really special. And it was our first year collaborating with them. We're excited to see where it goes from here. But it was was that for youth and high school? For youth and high school. Yep. It was youth on Saturday and then high school on Sunday, which also turned into like a great fall recruiting event for a lot of the D2 and D3 coaches. Just another opportunity to see those 23, so those rising seniors before they make their final decisions, which was great. Good stuff. One question I wanted to ask you that I didn't get a chance to ask Dave and Dan earlier. Do you see a difference in public school athletes versus private school athletes in your program? Oh, I don't, I wouldn't say I necessarily see a difference of athletes. I think the benefit is just the support that they get at the school. When I work with private school athletes and I'm going through the college recruiting process with them, I get a lot of support from their college counselor, which I think is huge, and their guidance counselor, and I'm able to access their teachers a little bit easier. Their their college or their private school coach is usually really accessible and really knowledgeable about the recruiting process. So there's a lot more help on that side. When it comes to athleticism, I'd say it's very similar. Both both of the kids are gritty. They're tough. They're hard workers. I mean, they, they had to get to where they had to be to get to that private school a lot of the time. And our public school kids just love them. They're usually our three sport athletes. They're here. They're, they're going from basketball to our skills night and then probably on two hours of homework when they get home too. So, I mean, I wouldn't say I see necessarily a difference between them, but just the support is a little bit better on the private school side. I do think there is, uh, we, is a, the, the timeline can be tough sometimes for the public school girls and boys just because of the tournament. And now it's, uh, it's become pretty significant when they're going into the end of June and missing three to four pretty big recruiting events. And, and I've, I've just come across it quite a bit in the recruiting process where college coaches are like, I, I really need to see them compete against this group. Or, you know, to quantify the talent amongst a group that I'm recruiting from this reach. And it's, I think it's a little bit of perfect storm because we, our weather isn't very cooperative. The guys are starting a little bit late girls because of field time. And you got snow on the field until sometimes mid-April, which can be really tough. But it, it, it is, it, once that tournament starts and they go into the end of June, it can, be, it can be pretty tough on a student athlete that's playing at a really high level at a public school. And it's, it's also the same ones that want to get recruited are the ones that are playing for a great team and typically are their leader. And it, it makes it a little bit tougher. Yeah. The boys final in 2021 was on July 3rd. So that was because of, that was ironic, not ironic. It was a, it was a mistake because of football. They ran football late, but I totally understand what you're saying. Like the, the access to the players that are still playing, you want those players to play at a high level, but they also, you also want them to be recruited, right? Like, the, and they want that too. So it's a mutually beneficial association with that. In terms of how you structure which tournaments you're going to, how far do you guys travel? How much is that put into your thought process in, in with college coaches and recruiting and, and your players? So on the girls' side, our main three recruiting tournaments in the fall is are during November. So it's the first three weekends in November, and the college coaches' calendar allows for that. And that, when I say that, it's for Division One school. 
So we run into that on the fall in the fall side as well, because those athletes that are playing field hockey and soccer at a very high level, those are their tournament games. So, you know, that first weekend in November, we try to stay somewhat local, a drivable tournament if possible. And we go to Albany, we go to the Northeast Showcase, which has been an unbelievable event, nice and small, tons of coaches attended. It's great. The second weekend, we always go to Lax for the Cure, which is a little bit more of a travel, but it's a one day event. So Kids have a tournament game on Saturday. They can still still scoot down there and get play those three or four games and still get seen. And then our third tournament is the IWCA President's Cup, which is the largest tournament we go to of the year. It's essential that the kids are there. Every single college coach is there. It's very similar to the one you guys just had in December on the men's side. Yep. And the past this past year was held in Texas, and it was colder than it was in Boston in Texas mm. for the three days that we were down there. <laughs> it was torture. Huh. Next year, we're going to Tampa. Thank goodness. We're back in the warm weather. And that's a huge event for us. I mean, we play the top clubs around the country. And like I said, every college coach is there because it's the women's convention that, run, that runs at the same time. So right. it's great. And but it was such a good idea that the men stole. <laughs> I know, exactly. 100%. Awesome. They, they were yeah. not going well to Florida until the women blazed that trail for sure. And in going to that, I, I went to the one this year in December for the men's and, and the boys. And it is a sprawling mass of every college coach and all the top players looking to be recruited. What is your cycle like in terms of, for me, I just cover and, and analyze who does well in the tournament. So. It was my first chance to look at 25s because I only do, I can only do two age groups at a time. I don't have a lot of room left in my brain to do more than that. So when do you guys, what, what's the biggest tournament for that, that switch when they're getting recruited? So I'd say for the 25s, it was that first tournament this fall. So it was that Northeast Showcase, November 5th and 6th, whatever it was. That's when they... This is, this is their fall, right? This is when they start getting looked at by Division One coaches because the top tier coaches have started to close their class, the previous class, and now they're looking at the 25s. Most of the Division One coaches will have at least a second assistant looking at 25s right now while they were finishing their 24 class, which was great. So tons of coaches at all the fields, which was huge. We're going to take a quick break, but there's more Chasing the Goal podcast on the way. Are you serious about playing your sport in college? Do you need a flexible education that allows you to maintain your practice and competition schedules while also preparing you to succeed at the next level? You should check out the University of Nebraska High School. UNHS is accredited and offers more than 100 online courses, including NCAA-approved courses to protect your academic eligibility. Students could earn a UNHS diploma or take a single course for transfer credit. Courses are college prep, self-paced, and available 24-7, 365. Enroll anytime and take up to a year to complete a course. Visit highschool.nebraska.edu today. Dedication, skills, focus, and the drive to play at the highest level. Massachusetts is committed to providing the coaching and curriculum that will allow boys and girls to learn and grow as individuals and as teammates. With an emphasis on skill development and academic excellence, their players have led the country in college recruiting for the past 10 years. With over 800-plus players moving on to play in college and over 130-plus high school All-Americans, Massachusetts has been able to set the nationwide standard unmatched in the sport of lacrosse. To learn more, log on to Massachusetts.com. That's Massachusetts.com. Looking to keep up with all the latest news and information on New England lacrosse? New England Lacrosse Journal and LaxJournal.com are the premier resources for information and inspiration on the New England lacrosse scene. 
Have every issue of New England Lacrosse Journal, the magazine, delivered to your home or office. And don't forget to stay in the game every day with a digital subscription to laxjournal.com to receive daily digital lacrosse coverage on club lacrosse, college commits, prep and high school, division one, two, and three colleges, showcases, rankings, and much more. Get in the game and behind the scenes now by logging on to laxjournal.com. Just click on the subscribe button and start the subscription that is right for you today. New England Lacrosse Journal is a Siemens Media publication. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful. This winter, Piatelli Lacrosse has a great way for you to stay in shape and play lacrosse. Kyle, yes. Starting in January, we have box lacrosse leagues for youth and high school. Players of all ages at two convenient locations in Agawam and Taunton, Massachusetts. The up-tempo pace of box lacrosse is an excellent way for players to learn to play faster and develop new skills that will make you more effective on the field in the spring. And coaches will be provided for each game, and all players will take part in mini clinic prior to the game where we will work on different box lacrosse skills. Make the most of your offseason, play some box lacrosse. This program is open to all interested players. For more information on our Winter Box League, visit www.piatellilacrosse.com. So your girls recruited more in the fall than they are in the summer or about the same? About the same. I'd, but the fall closes it out, right? So, right, right. So it's close, it starts it and then it finishes it. I, that's I gotcha. the way I think of it. Right. And the summer is really where the coaches are evaluating at their clinics, at their camps. They're watching those tournament games, whether in person or on film. But then they're making their final decisions in the fall or at their camps at the end of the summer. I have a, I have a weird question. Just based on my <clears throat> high school experience, the women's, the, the girls team practice right next to our field. They have a different field than us at, at Hopkinton. They run so much. Yeah. Do you have conditioning as a part of your program? Every day, all the time. Yeah, we run a lot. I mean, I think just because the speed of the game is, is so fast, right? It, we always say all the time, if you can, we can't teach how fast some of these kids are. I mean, you can improve, but you just got to work on that, that speed, number one, and then playing that fast, number two. So I think it's not just conditioning, but it's conditioning with this ball in your stick and how fast can you play. What are some of the things you do to develop that? We've been doing a ton of shot clock stuff, right? So you have 10 seconds, you have 15 seconds, a lot of things to just up uh, their decision making when they're playing that fast because I think that's a big area of weakness on the girls side they can play fast but they're going to turn the ball over so we're tr really trying to limit that and then teaching the kids those consequences for those turnovers which is huge. so I coached at Brookline High a long time ago 87 88 and, and they didn't have boundaries in the women's game then they actually that one year they wore helmets mm -hmm. women's game wore helmets I, I think that was 87 so how you train girls back then is very different than you trained women's players today now do you train like you train a attackman differently than you might train a midi or a defenseman on the the men's side now do you train defenders midfielders and attack differently on the women's side and how do you how do you train them differently for different positions so i would say in the women's side we don't necessarily break up like attackers here midis here defenders here because in the girls game you could be anywhere so right. you see some midis dodging from x you gotcha. see some defenders who who end up crossing and playing that seven set so we we don't necessarily break them up we do work on specific skills so we do take this is a defensive day but we want those attackers to get a lot of those same concepts because on the ride like Dave said, we're riding three quarters of the field. So you right. have to be a solid defender. You have to be able to turn them, slow them down. 
So a lot of those skills are tr- transcendable between what any, any position that you play. Is there any skill set or size strength more advantageous for defense, midi, and attack on the women's side? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the bigger the bigger type kid that you are, the better defender you're going to be. You're going to be able to stop those little tiny squirmy attackers that are going to be able to try to get underneath you. So I'd say that's often the, the coaches want that size on defense. It's really hard to tell a coach, well, this five foot kid's a rock star on D. And they're like, I don't know if she's going to be able to play defense against that six foot attacker at, at that division one level. So I would say that size is really important. For midfielders, it's the speed. You have to be fast. The, the thing that I get told the most when I'm talking to college coaches, I'm just not sure of her speed between the 30s. I don't know how fast she is. And I get that. So I think really teaching those middies to show off that speed is huge. And then for attack, you have to be the smartest. You have to have the best stick skills. You have to have great vision, great decision making. So as an attacker, you have the opportunity, no matter what size you are, to be excellent as long as you really work on those untangible things. Now, is the draw... The draw in the women's game is a little bit different because the, the the ladies or the women who take the draw actually have to stay on the field and play mm-hmm. where the men's game has become a little more specialized. Mm-hmm. So it's got to be very challenging to find that special player who can take the draw and be very productive on the field. Totally. And now there's a, a draw stick that Gate makes that is pretty much unbeatable if you're playing against it. So you'll see a lot of the times you can see Charlotte North exchanging that stick every time she takes the draw to get her stick back, but she uses the draw stick to take the draw. I mean, it's pretty incredible, the technology and and what they were able to do, but playing against it, if you don't have one, it's very hard to win. So it's come down to the stick now. Well, you you know, we had some men's stick, what was it, the blade back in the day? Yeah. Yeah, it was absolutely a deal changer if you didn't play against it. And then if you had two guys with it, it's like a stalemate. Right. It's right. almost a right. stalemate. Right. Same thing on the women's side now. It's they both have a draw stick. It's it's an even playing field at that point. I was gonna I was just gonna backtrack a little bit because Tracy's talking about like different players and interchangeable parts. And when you watch these high level games at the club level and in college, the, the thing that sticks out to me the most is you have to be able to catch. The turnovers occur in the women's across on the drop. And you watch it and it's, it's one and done. If the ball hits the ground, it's gone. Right. It's so fast. Mm -hmm. And I I just, I think it made such an impact when I was watching the the semifinals, finals of the women's game. And it was like, oh my gosh, you cannot miss the ball. It's, it's, and, and maybe even more appropriate, you have to be accurate with your passing. You throw it behind your teammate and the girl can't catch it. That's a turnover. It's going the other way. And uh, you bring up a very good point because checking is limited in the women's game. So priority is catch and throw and shoot and turnovers. If you you drop it, like you said, they're down the Mm -hmm. other end of the field and you're in trouble on the defensive side. Yeah, absolutely. Have they made any changes in the draw in terms of rules and regulations? I mean, I know there's always talk about the face-offs. The college coaches, Dave, this is if you have a good face-off guy. The face-offs are fine, yeah. but if you don't have a good face-off guy, we got to change the rules. Duke, Duke girls had a girl. They have a girl. I don't remember her name. But Maddie she, Jenner. Maddie she's J- excellent. Right. She's like 6'2", maybe, mm-hmm. yep. and she she gets the ball, boom, she's out. Yeah. So it, for the women's game, they we have you have to stay behind the line of the restraining line, all the other players except the three players that are on the circle. So there's one taking the draw, two girls on the circle, and until there's possession, the girls can't release. So similar to the guys, mm-hmm. I think, from that point. Yep. But that's changed. It used to be 
on the whistle, everybody was in. It was right. pretty dangerous. It was may- mayhem. <laughs> yeah, it was absolutely crazy. So I think this has definitely cleaned the game up a bit. And then usually you'll see after the draw, the girls exchanging the stick. I mean, we even do it at the high school level. So I think it makes a big difference. Can I ask you a controversial question? Sure. How do you feel about helmets in the women's game? I mean, I just think helmets is going to make it more physical than it already is. I think if you train good officials, I think you can keep the game completely safe. You watch high school soccer and there's so many more injuries than there is on the women's game, even with the sticks. So I think as long as one, the coaches are teaching how to check and two, the official officials are calling it fairly. I don't think there's any need for helmets whatsoever. You don't see a huge decrease in concussions or injuries because of the helmets. I mean, Florida has tried it. New York has tried it. And it it hasn't made that much of a difference at all. Right. It just makes it kind of a little more acceptable to be physical. Exactly. Right. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think women's lacrosse, I mean, men's lacrosse to a certain degree, but women's lacrosse, like the officiating is integral to the success of the game. Right. 100%. Like if you have bad officials within five minutes, Huge. I think for men's, you can take a while where you're like, mm, it's a weird call. I don't know. I don't think he knows. What it, but if you watch a women's game and they have an official that's kind of, this, you can see it right away. And you see it not from the players. You see it from the coaches. Because the, then the coaches know and they just look at you and they're like, okay. You know what? Have you had that experience? And is that different at the club level than it is in high school? Because I've only seen it at high school and a little bit of college. Yeah, so I think that's the challenge in the women's game right now is, is developing quality officiating. Because the women's game is dependent on the officials. I mean, right. In the men's game, you have the penalty and somebody goes off and you're a man up. But in women's game, you have an eight meter. So if you are getting an official that's constantly calling shooting space or three seconds and putting the other team or yourself on the eight meter, you should score every single time if you're on the eight. So I think it's huge that you are are training these stronger officials right away. I could tell you in the height at the high school level, I know most of the officials because being in the lacrosse world, I'm hiring them and I'm play, playing them. And I'll know if it's going to be a good game or a really tough game. And I'll and I'll know I'll tell my kids this game. We need to really make sure our feet are moving. Our sticks are up. We're not going for the check because we're going to get called every time we even bump a player. Whereas we go down to Maryland, we go down to Florida. And they are letting us play. We are physical. We play in a Long Island team and we are getting beat up. And my girls look at me like, this is so different than when we play in Massachusetts. And I said, I know. So we got to handle it. We got to be ready. But, you know, I don't think our girls are as prepared because we can't play like that every single day. We can play like that in practice against each other. But we can't play like that in a game, which makes it a little bit tricky. But our girls usually adjust by the end of the summer. Is, is there a way to mitigate that? Is there a drill that you think kind of helps you do that or, or something you can you can put into your training program that lets you be like, okay, well, this is a physical, so we can kind of do this a little bit more or it's not, so we can't do that, so we have to do this. Is there is there a actual like change that you can put in? I think it's more how you coach it, right? So I think it's more this, in this drill, we're really looking for contact. We're looking for the attackers to handle contact, whether that's adding a defender in, so where they're, they're constantly working on getting out of the double team, so they're handling that pressure. Or whether we are saying, right now I'm calling every single time you bump them. So we're just working on moving our feet, one or the other. On our attacking end, I mean, for our skills this winter in club, we're really utilizing the football pad blockers a lot just to work our kids really handling those bumps. That seems to be helping a ton. With the ball in their stick. With the ball in their stick. So we're doing 1v1s and the defender has that football pad and we're just just hitting them. We're just bumping them, getting them used to handling that. That bottom hand, that elbow really has to be strong. So so they get used to handling it. 
one of the contra- controversial calls that I see a lot in the women's game is is what what a what a cross check is, yeah, right? Horizontal and stick, the horizontal stick, yeah. and the extension. Whether mm-hmm. you extend your arm or not, but I couldn't tell you what what is and isn't. Neither could I really right. what it's, it's called. But yeah. I think you no know, for the women's game, you're told you have to have your stick between ten and two. And then you need to have that slight bend in the elbow. So if I approach an attacker and my arms are straight, then it's going to be illegal. Whereas I need to make sure to have that slight bend. I need the attacker to make contact to me. And then uh, it's not my defender's fault. So it's not my foul. It would be a charge on the attacker, per se, if she kept coming at Gotcha. Me. As long as the offensive player makes contact first. Correct. Then you can actually. You can, you can make that contact evenly with the attacker. Gotcha. Yeah, exactly. What are you, what you you touched on it too. It goes back to the fundamentals. Good defense is good footwork. Mm-hmm. So and and it is playing to forcing a person to their offhand using your feet. Eventually, they're going to drop the ball, and that's when we go. Mm-hmm. One yeah, of the best. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. In, in that in that vein, like which we talk about multi sport athletes all the time. Which sport trans does that translate to the best? Is it like men's worth basketball to to have the footwork in the defense or basketball is it, without uh, a doubt our yeah. one of our superstar players sydney scales who plays for bc she was an unbelievable basketball player played aau basketball probably played lacrosse very limitedly before she did, decided to go play lacrosse at bc and she started freshman year for them just because her footwork and her body position her ability to slide and, and anticipate the next play was just tremendous i mean she was just such a well-rounded athlete from that sense so i'd say basketball is definitely the best sport that crosses over. I agree. I think you can, can also say that for the men's game too. A lot of people say, oh, hockey is like lacrosse or soccer is like lacrosse. You pick up skill sets from those sports, mm-hmm. but basketball is the same sport. Yeah. It really is. Offense, defense, same on the women's side, Dave. Yeah, pick, roll, seal, slip, all those things are identical. What I loved is when Kayla Trainer came to BC, that's what she brought in. She loved, she would always say, yeah, I was watching this game last night and I brought this in and it was just so cool to see that she was a huge basketball player, but it was awesome to see her bring the actual set plays right into lacrosse and what they were using at BC. It was really cool to see. One of the best weekends I had with my family was Gillette Stadium. I don't know what year it was. My, my daughter played at Endicott and she graduated, I don't know, five or six years ago. But they had the women's games on Friday night and then the men's on Saturday, Sunday. And I think they had the women's championship on Sunday and the men's mm-hmm. championship I think it was a total of eight games that week. And I watched every single game. It was awesome. And BC was there. It was awesome. That was their first year. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, and so last year, I mean, why don't they have the championships? That was just a, it was a great event because it teaches women who don't watch the men game a little bit about the men's game. And I mean, all the games were great. It didn't matter whether it was men's or women's. It was awesome. I agree. I I totally agree. I hope they bring that back for sure. I think it was because they had the D2 and D3 games somewhere else and people didn't North, like that. It was supposed to be in North Carolina. Uh, yeah. I think that was that was part of it. And and listen, I agree. And just kind of leading in that question, what is the difference? And I ask this of a lot of college coaches and they give me bad answers. I feel like you're going to give me a good answer. Hope so. What is the difference between D1, D2, and D3 women's players? What is, is it, is it speed? Is it power? Is it, is it skills? Because I feel like the skills part is not like that anymore yeah i mean there's a lot less difference than it used to be for sure and we say that when we meet with all of our families and our kids i think it's definitely the speed at the division one level that is the first thing the coaches are looking for but then you have schools like middlebury and tufts and and they get those same caliber players but that's why they're also really successful but you know the the difference isn't as much as it used to be i'd say 
from a kid's perspective, a lot of them say they want to play D1, and we just really bring it back to, do you want it to be your entire life? And sometimes the answer is no, and that's okay. I mean, but D2 has really kind of changed to be a lot more like D1 than it used to be. And then D3 gives you a little bit more of a balance because you're not necessarily playing as much in the fall as you were in the spring. So I think in terms of of athletes, it comes down to your size and speed and then a little bit with your skill, right? Like that it needs to be at that next level. You really need to be able to hang with those top players to be able to play at the division one level. And then when it comes to division three, it's just a little bit slower game, I'd say. There are more drops. You, you are given that affordability, I think, because maybe those defenders don't have as quick of a first step when you might be able to handle it. But I still think that level is, is really high. And I think the kids to play at the college level now, it's a lot harder than it used to be. Yeah, I think back in the day, I would, I would watch D3 because I'm coaching, I'm seeing everything around it, and they would have games after us. Sometimes I'd stay and watch. And one thing that all the D3 women's teams had in common is they all had one player who was way better than everyone else. And it was like stark. Like you could just watch it. And it wasn't, it, it was just insane how different that is mm -hmm. from the men's game where a women, an amazing women's player can take over a game. 100%. In a way that an amazing men's player can't. I think that's one of the most fascinating things about the sport. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I, I said that at the high school level, too, is if you have like that one midi that can run up and down and score, like you're all set. I used to coach for Braintree High School, and that was the case. And now I'm at Thayer Academy, and I'm the assistant coach there. And it's not like that at the ISL. You could have one great player, but it's really easy to shut them down. So I think it totally depends what, you know, at the high school level, at least, what who you're competing against. And then I was also going to add at the division three level, there's just such a disparity of schools. Oh, I mean, those, those yeah. NEDSCAC programs are very similar to a division one caliber player. Whereas some of the smaller schools are just, they're super grateful to be able to field a team, which is, which is awesome. So they're like, we say to the kids, yes, it's hard to play at the college level, but there is a place for everybody. I also, there's a, there's a formula I apply to these games. If you watch film, like probably take you 10 minutes. You watch film of a D3 game, and a D1 game, you see a difference in the midfield. And I would challenge anybody to do that. It's really cool. The girls carry the ball longer in Division Three. The ball's in their stick three, four, five cradles. In Division One, you watch the BC-UNC game. It's one cradle move, one cradle yeah. move. The ball's constantly moving. And it, it makes it tougher, like you said. It makes it much tougher to, to, to focus on one player. But yeah, I and I think in, in the men's game, those... The two teams that did that last year were in the championship. It was Cornell and, and Maryland played that way on, on the men's side. The, there wasn't overcarrying. You know, I, when I coached with, with Jerry Byrne, he would call it screw dodging because it's like a screw into the ground. You just run yourself into the ground and you, you just don't see that at the higher levels. I think that's one of the things that separates elite players is not only being able to contribute in that system, but knowing that you have an out knowing where the people you're passing to are and your game IQ. Is that, is it, how do you teach game IQ from club perspective? And when do you start kind of implementing that into the training? Yeah, we, we've been use, utilizing a lot of film because I think that's something that across the board has been utilized more. So I think for the kids to teach that IQ, we say, now you need to go back and you need to tell us, okay, on offense, Tell us what something our team ran well when we, we ran this play. Or tell us defensively when we should have slid. 
and give us timestamps just to make them go back and really analyze and help build their IQ. We always say the more games that you watch, the the higher IQ you're going to have. And now with, with the women's game being so much more accessible with everything being on ESPNU, that's been a huge game changer for us because they're able to go watch that film. They're able to see what they need to do, see how to move off ball, see how quickly you need to move that ball up the field. And I think that's been a huge asset for us. I think there's a huge emphasis on on live too, like watching. And we're we're really fortunate because you have probably the most successful program in the country right here in our backyard. But you have other other great programs around us too. So girls can get out and watch live games because that's that's huge to emulate like, oh, this play, I want to see this player. And you watch it on film, it's one thing, but then you go and watch, I watched Charlotte North ring a ball off the goalie's helmet and it landed in that mezzanine level at BC Stadium. <laughs> wow. Right, that's big. I was, yeah, yeah guys I played with, I couldn't do that. <laughs> Yeah, she was yeah, fun she, to watch. She yeah. was. Dave, you do, had, do you oh, actually oh, think that the BC program has has increased the amount of girls playing lacrosse? Because I feel like it's the superstardom of of Charlotte North. We've talked about like five times already, and also the, Kayla Trainer and all those all those players have kind of lifted right the profile of that school to a different level than I think. I get asked all the time. The one question I get asked all the time that annoys me so much is, "Oh, well, the women's team at BC is so good. When are they doing a men's team?" Look, I, I don't know. That's not up to me. Yeah. That's an AD decision. Know. You know what? I do think that it's had a, a very positive effect on lacrosse in Massachusetts in general. Oh, absolutely. I mean, what Acacia has built there, Acacia, Jen, Sam, and they have just been so special. They really have. And, and they are so good about running events and getting out there and really making athletes accessible that these girls just idolize them. Anytime there's a game, like if we have a spring league game coming up, they're like, well, what time are we going to play? Because BC plays at noon. We're hoping to go to both. All, our whole club is there supporting them. And that's across the board. All the other club programs are out there. The high school teams, the town teams. I mean, you have the best lacrosse in the entire country. Yeah. 20 minutes away. I mean, it's huge. You show up to a, you show up to a BC game too, and, and there's a table set up. And you're like, oh, what's that? And that's where they sign autographs. And I think it's amazing. It's awesome. I was like, I got like the whole team's autograph. Awesome. Well, that's great. That's amazing. <laughs> Dave, I got like, one last question for Dave. You had the op you have the opportunity now to coach girls and boys. How is your approach different and what what's it like coaching girls and boys? It's a tremendous question. Girls are very concrete and correct me if I'm wrong. So you're like when this happens you have to do this. Okay? And then there's this subtle adjustment and like maybe the defender won't try to get through the pick. They'll just go to the backside. And then you pop and you're, you're standing there and you're like, all right, well, she, she went here. Now you got to go here. So, Coach, you told me I have to go here. <laughs> and it's, it is, it is a very real thing. And it's, I always say it's like English class. There's no, there's no set rule that actually is absolute ever like this, then this. And you're kind of, oh, look at you weird, but you know, you have to make those little adjustments and, but I do, I do think it's, it's getting better. And we talk about IQ, it's reps, keep getting high, high level game reps. Totally. Dave's awesome. Having on the sidelines. He has so much fun. I'm brings sure. the, He brings the energy. Brings energy. That's for sure. Energy, right. energy. I, I found that when I coached my daughters, when I coached, older, I found the girls to be a little more attentive at younger ages and not sort of like boys tend to space out sometimes and go into another another hemisphere yeah maybe when they get a little older they, they come back to to earth but that's i don't know i just i, I really enjoyed coaching the girls i loved it 
I, 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 I mean, you get a hold of like one of Tracy's teams and they're glued to you. You have to be on your best behavior. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have to watch your P's and Q's, <laughs> yeah. right? And, yeah. and, and your verbiage better be on point, That's right? Because right. there's no such thing as a roll dodge, all right? And yeah. you get beat up for that. Yeah, so. yeah. Guys, we use the term roll dodge, I swear. Well, it's okay. getting better. It's getting better. <laughs> Good. Great. All right, well, we're out of time. We want to thank you for coming in. Really appreciate you going to the studio and suffering, Jack. But uh, sorry, sorry, we, sorry, we uh, we missed your presence. I feel like that's a lie, but thank you. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to Doing the Cross Journals, Chasing the Gold Podcast. For Jack Piatelli. I'm Kyle Devitt. See you next time. Feel better. <laughs> <laughs>